Good morning. It's good to be with you today. This past year, my wife Donna and I have developed a habit of going out for dinner on Friday night, someplace simple, uh, where we can just get a really good hamburger with all the toppings. And more often than not, the places we go to are crowded, and we usually end up just sitting at the bar and ordering our food there. Well, the last time we ate out, I paid the bill with my debit card, and then we went home. And the next morning, I couldn't find my card anywhere, not in my wallet, not in my jacket, not in my pants, not in my car, nowhere. I mean, has that ever happened to you? Well, if you've ever lost something like that, you know that's when the panic sets in. What if I dropped it in the parking lot? What if somebody stole it off the bar when I wasn't looking? What if someone is using my card right now? What if someone is stealing my identity? Well, I called the restaurant as soon as it opened that day, and thankfully they had the card. I had just left it with the check. But the problem of identity theft is very real. Not just credit cards, but people stealing your passwords, your personal and financial information, and using your identity to benefit themselves at your expense. If that's ever happened to you, you know it can be a real nightmare. And getting your identity back is no small task. Identity theft can disrupt your whole life. And though identity theft has become a much bigger, more sophisticated problem over the last few years, this morning I want to suggest that it's really not all that new. It's been going on for a very long time. In fact, as I'll mention in a few minutes, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is the second message series in second message in our series entitled Who Am I? Discovering Your Identity in Christ. And we're looking at how the Bible teaches that as followers of Jesus, one of the main reasons we don't experience his peace and his power on a daily basis is that we don't know our true identity in Christ. We don't know who we are. The Bible teaches that when we put our faith in Christ, when we put our lives in his hands, a real spiritual birth takes place within us. The spiritual side of life actually comes alive. Before Christ, our spiritual life isn't just dormant, it's dead. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. We're spiritually dead, not spiritually ill, not spiritually weak, but spiritually dead and separated from God because of our sins and our transgressions. There isn't even a little flicker of light. That candle has been blown out. That's where all of us start, sort of engulfed in a sinful nature and trapped in darkness. But Christ came to change all that. And through his death and resurrection, we can now have a a new life born within us when we put our faith in him. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Alive. A whole new quality of life because now we belong to Christ. When we put our trust in Christ, his Holy Spirit literally takes up residence within our souls and brings our spirit to life. We get a resurrection too. What was dead in us comes alive. Once we are united with Christ, we share his life. We become his possession. And that's our true identity. Loved, valued, forgiven, and free. That's who we really are because God says so. But the problem is the old identity doesn't automatically disappear and all our old ways of thinking and feeling and reacting are still hanging around causing us trouble. I said last week that we get things sort of tattooed on our minds, our brains, and that's that old self and it's very hard to shake. 
And the key verse that Paul gives us is in Ephesians 4, 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We have to put on this new self, this new identity. It has to affect a a change in our thinking, in our psychology, in our identity. We are to be made new in the attitude of our minds. That's where the battle is. So the question we face every day is this. Are we going to continue to live the old way or can our minds, our attitudes, live this new identity that we have in Christ? You know, Jesus was concerned about our eternal destiny, our eternal life, no question about it, but he was also concerned about the quality of our lives right here and right now, how we live our lives during our time on planet Earth. In John 10.10, he said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Abundantly. A fullness of life. It's a wonderful world. That's one of Jesus' prayers for us, to really live life. That's how Jesus lived. He he modeled this for us. I mean, he's the one who who relished wedding celebrations and and fine wine and expensive aromatic oils and, and loud parties and good friendships. He loved children and the poor, and he cared for those who carried heavy burdens. He was comfortable in the company of outcasts and kings, and yet none of those things controlled him. He even allowed his earthly life to come to an end at the cross because he wasn't concerned about the length of his life, only that his life would serve the Father's will and express the Father's love. And in that same way, he wants us to live life to the full, in all its fullness, knowing that we belong to Christ, we belong to him, because that's our original identity. In the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, we're told from the very beginning God created human beings in his own image, in his own likeness. In other words, we shared an identity with God. But God wasn't interested in creating human puppets, so he gave us self-awareness and a conscience and most of all free will. We could choose, and through Adam and Eve, unfortunately, we chose badly. And evil has scarred God's creation ever since. Evil. That's a hard word for people to understand in our humanistic and kind of relativistic culture. We want to put a smiley face on everything and explain everything away as simply the result of of bad parenting or too many chemicals in our food. No, evil is real. And if we're going to get our identity straight, we have to take a serious look at how our identity has been damaged by evil. In his book, People of the Lie, psychologist M. Scott Peck does a great job of building a bridge between the practice of psychology and Christian spirituality, especially when it comes to an understanding of evil. He describes the time his son came up to him and in typical eight-year-old curiosity wanted to know why the word evil is live spelled backwards. And that's when it hit him. That silly question summarized for him what evil really is. It's anti-life, the opposite of life. It's what opposes life and health 
and happiness. Everything which opposes God and God's life. God's identity in us. Evil kills the human spirit, puts it to death, and wants to keep it dead. In Scripture, this evil is made personal in the figure of the fallen angel, Satan. Satan is described as the personification of evil. Listen to how Jesus describes him in John chapter 8. Just after he gave, gave these beautiful words, remember, if I told you my teaching, you are, if you hold to my teaching, you are truly my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the people listening to him were offended because they didn't think of themselves as being enslaved to anything, not even to sin. They looked back to the patriarch Abraham as their historical father, and they claimed that as their spiritual pedigree, and that meant that they were really above any of the problems that Jesus was talking about. So Jesus says to them in verse 39, If you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. But Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. And listen to this. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. A liar and the father of lies. That's how Jesus describes the devil. Lying is his native language. That's what the evil one does best. And whether or not you believe in the devil as a real being as I do, or you see Satan as purely a symbolic thing, it doesn't matter to me at this point. What Dr. Peck is pointing out is that all evil begins as a lie. All evil begins as a lie. That's what happened in the temptation of Adam and Eve. They have a perfect world, everything they need with only one restriction. God says, you are free to eat of the true, eat from any tree in the garden, but you, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But in Genesis 3, when the serpent speaks to Eve, it calls into question what God had told her about the tree. The serpent lies to Eve and says, you won't really die. And what's worse She believed that. She believed the lie. And that one lie is at the heart of all things evil, calling into question what God says is true. Believing in a lie is at the heart of everything sinful. Now listen up. The number one way the evil one robs us of abundant life, the number one way evil steals our identity is that we believe lies. There's nothing more destructive to your new identity in Christ than believing the lies that have been tattooed on your mind because a lie believed as the truth will affect you as if it were true. A lie, even though it's not true, if it's believed, it will affect you as if it were true. 
Take this as an extreme example of what I mean. When people struggle with anorexia, they are really prisoners of a lie. They look in the mirror, and no matter how thin or how slender everyone else would say that they are, the anorexic person looks in the mirror and always sees themselves as fat. And you can say all day long, you're not fat. Yes, I am. No, you're not. And they honestly believe they're fat. It doesn't make any sense. It's not rational. It's a lie. And they are prisoners of that deception. Folks, there are lots of lies that we believe about ourselves that are simply not true. Lies that cripple us. Lies that steal our joy and mar our relationships. That cause us fear and shame and self-doubt and depression. Lies that belong to our old identity, but we're still living as though those lies are true. Here are a few of the most common lies people believe. I can't be forgiven. Deep inside, there's the belief that that I'm the hopeless case. Even people who have given their lives to Christ still struggle with this thought that there's no way God can really forgive me for what I've done. My past is so dark, God can't possibly forgive me. What I've done is so bad, God can't want me. I've, I've messed it up so badly, God can't possibly use me. That's a lie from the devil. We know God loves us. We know Christ died for us. But that lie worms its way into our thinking, into our heads. And instead of believing what God says, we believe the lie. Or how about this one? Other Christians don't struggle like I do. I'm the only one. Somehow my situation is totally unique, totally different. No one has ever had the kind of problems that I have. My problems are too big, too complicated. I'm too far gone. And that's a lie. That's an insult to God's grace. That's an insult from the accuser. And it's simply not true. As Corey Ten Boom once said, there is no pit, no pit so deep that God's love isn't deeper still. Or here's another one. A very popular lie. I can't change. Uh, that's just the way I am. I was born this way and there's nothing that I or anyone else can do about it. There's nothing God can do about it either. I'm sort of locked in, set in concrete. Or maybe they'll say it this way. They'll say, it's too late for me. You know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and I'm just an old dog. Well, that's a lie. There's no sin that's stronger than the grace of God. The evil one wants to wall you off from experiencing God's grace. He doesn't want you to experience the freedom of your new identity in Christ. He wants you to stay stuck. But here's the biggest lie, and possibly the most widely believed lie, the lie that is actually at the root of most of these other lies. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. That lie affects so many people. I'm not good enough. In fact, I'll never be good enough. No matter how hard I try, I'm inadequate. And even if I do my best, that still won't be enough. One reason why this lie is so prevalent, particularly among people of faith, is that it's partially true. Partially true. Because our faith teaches we aren't good enough for heaven. 
We are sinful through and through. We can't be good enough to earn our salvation. That's why we need a loving Savior like Jesus. Jesus did something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. He was that perfect, sinless sacrifice. And his resurrection shows his power over everything, including sin and death. And by his grace, he makes us right before God. Our sin is taken care of. We aren't good enough for the perfection of God. And God loves us anyway. We are his beloved. But that's not really what this lie is all about. It's not really about our relationship with God. This lie isn't about our sin. It's about our sense of being, our sense of self, our sense of identity. Because this lie wraps our identity with shame. And shame, shame that's not from God. It's a lie that keeps us stuck in our past as though Christ has done nothing for us at all, as though his grace is insufficient for us. And where does this sense of not being good enough come from? Well, you can spend a lot of time trying to analyze your past, the the home you grew up in. Maybe there was a major deficit in parental love, or maybe you're still listening to the voices from your past that said things like, you know, you're stupid, you're no good, you're pathetic. You have to do better. And you've heard those voices so often that you started to believe them. However, those voices started, they're your voices now. It's what you are saying to yourself now. Or maybe it's that experience that you keep reliving, that thing that happened that you can't get out of your head and it makes you feel unworthy. People who have suffered some kind of physical or Emotional pain from being physically or sexually abused are particularly susceptible to this kind of lie. Often these innocent victims are so traumatized they believe that they did something wrong, which leaves them full of shame and guilt. Of course it doesn't make any sense, but it's real. And it's a lie, but it worms its way into people's minds. At the bottom of the lie, I'm not good enough, is a deep wound that says, not good enough means I'm unlovable. I'm not worthy of being loved. I am incapable of being loved. I'm somehow unacceptable because there's something wrong with me. And that's Satan's lie. Yet people will keep trying and trying to earn recognition, to gain respect, to to win love, People who struggle with this lie can be driven to perfectionism. They can be very accomplished and very successful from the world's point of view. And yet, even if that recognition or respect or love is offered, they can't receive it because they can't believe it's true. They have an anorexia of the soul. An anorexia of the soul. They cannot see their worthiness in Christ. No matter what anyone else sees, what they see in the mirror is someone who will never be good enough. But here's the gospel. You are not who others say you are. You are not what the voices from your past tell you you are. You are not what happened to you in the past. You are not even who you say you are. You are who God says you are. You are who God says you are. You are a miracle of God's grace. You are so incredibly special that, God, that Jesus has you 
on his mind. He believes you are worthy of his love, and that's why he died for you. His heart beats for you. He cares for you. He came for you, and he's calling for you. He's saying, you belong to me. If you have Christ in your life, you have a a new heart, a new spirit, a new identity. So whenever that I'm not good enough lie comes up, you have to replace it with the truth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 that we are to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Every thought captive. That means you have to be aware of when Satan's lies start to run around inside your brain. You have to interrupt the normal pattern of how you let these thoughts take control of your emotions and your feelings. And once you recognize what's happening, you have to capture those lies, sort of throw a net over them, take them prisoner, and then let God's truth renew your mind. You believe what God says about you. That's who you really are. All sin begins with a lie. If you believe the lies, you will live and feel and act on the basis as if they are true. And the evil one will steal your identity. Last week I mentioned the positive, self-affirming statements Jesus made about himself in the Gospel of John, the seven I am statements. And I said that I wanted us to come up with our own I am statements that will help us reinforce Christ's new identity in us. We're going to make a list and keep track of these I am's. They're on the back of your bulletin this morning. Last week's I am statement was, I am loved. And that that's the foundation of everything else. I am loved by God. And there are a lot of I am's that we could use to counteract the father of lives. But the one I would like you to write down this morning is this. I am who God says I am. I am who God says I am. God tells me I am free and forgiven. God tells me I am new in Christ. God tells me I belong to him. God tells me I am worthy in his sight. I am who God says that I am. To help you remember this this week, I have a card that I want you to pick up on the way out from the ushers or from the front or the entrances of the different locations. Uh, This card just has a short poem on it that ends with these words. God is who he says he is, and he can do anything he says he can do. You are who he says you are, and you can do anything he asks you to do. Let that truth of Christ Fill your mind and your heart and your spirit this week. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that we would be able this week to take, to first of all, recognize the lies that are in our brains and to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. They don't want to be obedient. It's not an easy job. They're going to fight back. And so, Lord, we need your grace to come in and help us as we take these thoughts captive and replace those lies with the truth of Scripture, the truth of your grace, the truth of your calling upon us, the truth of your Holy Spirit living within us. And, Lord, if there's anyone who really is trapped by thoughts from the past, a 
they can't get out of this remembering of some tragedy or traumatic event in their past, Lord, I just pray that in a dramatic and, and powerful way, you would set them free from those thoughts and help those thoughts to be placed under submission to the authority of the Word of God and to your Spirit. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.